Uh, if you could turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. I started this series on Christ's seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation uh, about a, almost a year ago. And uh, so every time that I've had an opportunity to preach, I've just been doing one of these seven churches. And now today we are doing the seventh church, the church of Laodicea. And this uh, series is going to be coming to a close, uh, which I have to admit that I'm kind of sad about because I've enjoyed studying this. I think we've learned a lot and been encouraged and challenged through the series. And also because I'm preaching again next week and now I'm not really sure what I'm going to preach next week. So if you have any ideas, feel free to let me know. I'll figure it out. But we are going to be concluding this series, and uh, this church in particular, I think its message is very relevant. I've, I've read a lot of commentaries and a lot of pastors that have said out of any of these seven churches, perhaps the message to the church in Laodicea is maybe the most relevant to us in the American church. So follow along as I read Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Wouldn't that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A couple things to note about Laodicea. Uh, the city of Laodicea was incredibly wealthy, and out of all these seven cities that we've talked about, they were the most wealthy. They were well known for their finance and banking industries, and so if you needed to do something like that, if you were in that world, Laodicea is where you would go. They also had a world-renowned medical school uh, and, and as particularly a speciality of that school is they developed this eye salve that treated all sorts of different eye diseases. And so people came from all over that had vision troubles that couldn't see and, and received this medicine and improved their vision. The other thing about them is they were known for this unique and luxurious black wool that they produced, and they made super fine clothing, and so they were, they were the designer clothing headquarters of their area in that day, and so if you wanted fine clothes, that's where you got them from, and they exported those all over the known world. But despite all of these riches and, and resources and things they had going for them, Christ is not very impressed with the church in Laodicea. In fact, I think that's probably saying it very lightly. 
As we've looked at these letters, maybe you've noticed they all follow a specific pattern. They begin with Christ introducing himself, and then he commends the church for the good things that they're doing, and then if needed, he gives them correction and warning and rebuke. But what's missing in this letter to Laodicea is that saying positive things, encouraging things. There is nothing good that Christ commends this church for, and it's the only church of the seven churches of which Christ has absolutely nothing good to say about them. The church that comes closest is Sardis, but even in Sardis, he says, there's a faithful remnant that follows me, and he commends them, but here there's none of that, nothing positive that Christ says about this church. In addition to that, the rebuke that Christ gives to this church is pretty harsh. The way that he talks about them is uh, particularly harsh. And so uh, go ahead and look at it with me in verse 15 through 16. Let's look at some things that he says to them. First in 15 through 16, he says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Wouldn't that you be either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The first thing that Christ does in his rebuke is he compares them to lukewarm water. Now, what on the earth does it mean that they are lukewarm? If you're like me, you've probably heard this text growing up, and maybe you've heard it explained this way. This is how I always heard it. Uh, If you're hot, you're on fire for Jesus, and, and that's good. And if you're cold, you're an outright rebellion to Christ. But if you're lukewarm, you're, you're a fake Christian. You're a Christian in name. Maybe you go to church, you go through the motions, but you're not truly saved. You're not truly a believer. And so it is better to be an outright rebellion to God than to be faking it. And I understand that. I think that there's some truth to that. Uh, Many of us who have tried to evangelize to people who think that they're saved and are not, those are some of the hardest people to share the gospel with. People that are outright lost, they know that they're lost. And and so that makes it easier to have some of those conversations. And so while I think that there's some truth to that, I don't think that's what this text is saying. You see, this is written to not unbelievers, not fake Christians, but it is written to a church, a true church filled with genuine yet flawed believers. This church has one of the lampstands that's talked about in earlier in Revelation. And if you go down to verse 19, you see he says of them, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Christ loves this church. And who does God discipline? He disciplines his children. And so it seems that Christ is calling them lukewarm, but this is not describing fake Christians, but genuine believers. So what does it mean when he calls the church in Laodicea lukewarm? This is where knowing some of the historical context of Laodicea is helpful. We are reminded that scripture that we have was written for us, but it was not written to us, at least not directly. Scripture was written in two specific people in a specific context. And yes, it is relevant for us, but when we interpret Scripture, what we need to look at is not what does this text mean to me, but what would this text have meant to the original audience? What was the author trying to convey at that time? And so if we look into Laodicea, we see that Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city. They had all these resources, but there was one thing that Laodicea lacked, and that was a good source of water. 
There was two other cities close to Laodicea. Hierapolis, which was north of Laodicea, they had these hot springs. And these springs were, were soothing and were said to have healing properties. And they were well-known. People came all over to enjoy these hot springs. The other city that was their neighbor was Colossae. Colossae had cold, pure drinking water that was made from melting snow. And that was actually such a rarity in that area that some people think the whole reason Colossae was founded there was because it had such good water. Probably someone bottled it up and tried to sell it in jars, you know, get the Colossae pure water. And so those cities had great water and Laodicea did not. Laodicea didn't have any sort of water source. And so what they had to do is they actually built an aqueduct and they transported water from miles away from a hot spring. So by the time that water got into the city, guess what that water was? Lukewarm. It was lukewarm and stale and it was filled with bad tasting minerals. You can actually, they have like some pipes from that aqueduct and you can see all the, the corrosive uh, things that have built up in it. It was nasty, disgusting, nauseating water. And so they were known for their riches. They were known for all these resources, but they were also known for the place that you don't really want to drink the water there unless you absolutely have to. Lukewarm water isn't really good for much. Hot water is soothing. You can use it to make tea or, or cook things in. Uh, cold water is refreshing and it helps cool you off on a hot day. But lukewarm water isn't really good for either of those things. It's not soothing. It's not refreshing. And especially back then, it was useless. You couldn't pop some ice cubes in from the freezer or nuke it in the microwave. There wasn't much you could do with lukewarm water. And furthermore, lukewarm water is not just useless. Lukewarm water is gross. I, I like to drink water out of these plastic cups. And uh, I do that throughout the week. And uh, I am so bad at this. I leave these cups everywhere because I forget them. And it's, it's so bad to the point that people at church have been taking pictures of these cups in different places and sending them. They're like, oh, look where Pastor Matt left his cup today. So it's a problem. I'm trying to work on it. But sometimes, days later, I rediscover one of these lost cups. And I think, you know, it looks okay. Uh, you know, it's probably fine. I, I guess I'll just drink it. I don't want to waste it. I mean, it's, you know, so, and, and I always regret that because it tastes disgusting. That water that was cool and refreshing and pure when I got it a few days ago is now pretty gross. And all of us who have drank lukewarm water know that. There's a reason uh, why when you go to Starbucks or any coffee shop, you have two options. You can get it hot or you can get it iced. Lukewarm is not on the menu. We have whole industries that are created to make cups and mugs that keep hot drinks hot and cold drinks cold for as long as possible. And so what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, when he calls them lukewarm, he's not saying you're fake Christians. He's saying you are just like your useless, disgusting water. You're spiritually good for nothing and disgusting, so disgusting, in fact, that Jesus says in verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. And let me tell you that spit is actually a very mild, candy-coated translation of that word. It literally means to vomit, 
to throw up, to puke. So imagine that. Jesus is saying to this church, I am so disgusted by you, you make me want to throw up. Wow. That is a harsh rebuke of this church. But what makes Christ speak this way about the church in Laodicea? I mean, if we remember a lot of the churches in, in Revelation, they're not doing so hot either, right? We have churches involved in idolatry, churches that are compromising their doctrine and, and allowing sexual immorality and doing all sorts of these, what we would think is heinous sins, and we don't really see any evidence of that going on in Laodicea. And yet Christ says, in my eyes, you're useless, you're disgusting, you make me want to throw up, I have nothing good to say about you. Why is his rebuke so harsh? What are they doing in this church? If we continue in verse 17, I think we see a little bit more clearly what this lukewarmness actually is and why Christ rebukes this church so harshly. Verse 17 says this, go ahead and look at it. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. This church had a very high estimation of themselves. The city of Laodicea was rich and they knew it. They were so prideful in their own wealth and self-sufficiency, in fact, that in AD 60, when a terrible earthquake leveled Laodicea and all the cities around it, Rome offered financial aid to help rebuild. And you know what? Laodicea was the only city that said, no, thanks, we got this. And they rebuilt the city without any help from the Roman Empire, and they rebuilt it bigger and better than it was before. And so this prideful self-sufficiency that's in this city seems to have penetrated this church. Look again at what they say about themselves. They say, I am rich. They go on to say, I have prospered. What that actually means is, I have made myself rich. I am rich, I am wealthy, and I'm the one who's done it. And then lastly, they say, I need nothing. Everything I've got I already have. Everything I want, I can get myself. Apparently, they were so prideful in their own self-sufficiency that they didn't even feel like they needed Jesus. As we see in verse 20, he is outside of the church. Essentially, they said to Christ the same thing that they said to the Roman emperor. Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need you. We've got this on our own. Maybe they didn't outright say that. The church of Laodicea was living as if they needed nothing from God. And it's this attitude of sinful self-reliance that causes Christ to compare this church to their own lukewarm, disgusting water. And no wonder. How arrogant to have this attitude how prideful to know all the riches of christ and to say no thanks i've got everything i need right here and how often do we do the exact same thing because if we're honest this sinful self-reliance this prideful self-sufficiency is not just a problem in laodicea it is a problem for us especially living in America, 
Like Laodicea, we are surrounded by incredible wealth and resources, and even the poorest of us is still incredibly wealthy compared to the rest of the world. We've got insurance policies and safety nets and money and savings and retirement, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy and having the things that you can need, but you can bet that there is a danger there. Because I think we all know by experience how easy it is when we have all this stuff to get comfortable and to forget God. We've all been there. I've been there. When times are difficult, when times are tough, we know our need for God. We, we can't help but pray to God, but when things are going good, when everything's going right, when you have all the things that you need and more, it can be so easy to live just like the church in Laodicea. Think that maybe I don't need God so much after all. Maybe I had got this on my own. And of course, we'd never say those things out loud, but we sure do live like it sometimes neglecting to pray and spend time in God's word in the good times, taking God's good gifts that he's given us and seeing them as something that we have earned ourselves, finding confidence and peace in ourselves and our own stuff, and sometimes going whole days without even acknowledging that God exists. This attitude Sinful self-reliance might not feel like that big of a deal to us, but it is to God. This is a sin that makes us useless and makes Christ want to throw up. So how do we avoid falling into this attitude of sinful self-reliance? Especially when we live in a place like Laodicea that has all this wealth, that we have all these resources. And so the rest of our time today, I want to give you four ways from this text to guard against sinful self-reliance. Four ways to guard against sinful self-reliance. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want Christ to say of me, Matt makes me want to puke. So let's look together in this text. And I think that Christ gives us some very helpful ways to guard against this attitude. The first way to guard against sinful self-reliance is to remember who God is. Remember who God is. We see this in verse 14. Christ, as he has in each of the seven letters, introduces himself, and he always introduces himself in a way that particularly speaks to that church. Look what he says about himself in verse 14. The angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The first way he describes himself is he says he is the amen. Amen is a Hebrew word meaning truth or affirmation. We say it after our prayers lots of times, but this is actually a title that's used of God the Father in Isaiah says that he is the God of the amen. And so Jesus, by using this title for himself, is affirming his divinity. And this is important because when we're acting in sinful self-reliance, what we're essentially saying is that I am God. And Jesus says, no, you're not. 
That's me. I am the amen. But Jesus is also, goes on to say, the faithful and true witness. This is again in contrast to Laodicea, who's so self-deceived that they don't see their true state. And we can be self-deceived so easily as well. Our hearts are wicked. Sin is blinding. And so we need Christ, the God of truth, the faithful witness, who is always true to guide us. And he does that through his word and by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, Christ is the beginning of God's creation. This word for beginning means the, the source or the origin of God's creation. As Colossians 1, 16 through 17 tells us of Christ, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So I think the reason Christ is bringing this up is we can put so much confidence, like Laodicea, in our possessions We can look at our bank account, our jobs, our our relationships, and feel like, I don't really need God. And, And Christ is saying here, who do you think owns all that stuff? Who created everything that you see? Who sustains you and everything else around you? It is all his. And James 1.17 tells us that every good gift comes from God. The money in our bank account, the car that we drive, our jobs, our family, it's all his. And the only reason we have anything good is because he gave it to us. And so how can we look at that and and see that truth and say, look at me, look at all that I have. I don't need anybody else. Everything that we have is a gift from God. One of the things that my wife and I love to do is explore national parks. And so earlier in June, we went to Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. And uh, it was beautiful out there. And one of the hikes that we did is, is a hike to Dream Lake. If you ever go out there, you got to go to Dream Lake. Because you're, you're going through the woods, and, and then there's this clearing, and you see this beautiful lake that's surrounded by these ginormous mountains, and the mountains are perfectly reflected in the water. It is just a beautiful, awestruck thing to see. And no one looks at all that beauty before them and says, wow, I sure am pretty great. Nobody does that. That would be ridiculous to do that because in in light of all that beauty before us, we can't help but be in awe and feel pretty small. So when we remember who God is, when we see how big he is, how great he is, his glory and beauty, we can't say, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look how I figured out everything on my own and I don't need you. We can't say that. When we see Christ in his glory, in his beauty, when we see that everything that we have is from him, the sustainer, the creator, if we can see the beauty of Christ, if we can see all that, then suddenly any pride And the sinful self-reliance melts away. And so when we are tempted towards sinful self-reliance, we would do well to remember who God is. But the next thing to guard against 
sinful self-reliance is not just to remember who God is, but to remember who we are. To remember who we are. And the first thing to remember about who we are is to remember that apart from Christ, we are utterly destitute. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's as if Christ is saying to this church in Laodicea, you don't think you need me? Let me tell you what you are without me. And it is not good. You're wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor. This word for poor doesn't mean like we're struggling. It means you're, you've hit rock bottom. You're a beggar on the streets, blind and naked. Church doesn't think they need Christ, but apart from Christ, the church of Laodicea, that's so wealthy in the things of this world, is in utter poverty. And so are we. Romans 7, 18 tells us that in ourselves, there is nothing good that dwells in us. But here's the flip side of this coin. Apart from Christ, we are wretched and impoverished, but because of Christ, we are exceedingly rich. Look at verse 18. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Can't help but being struck with the incredible irony in these verses. Laodicea is a church that boasts about being rich, and yet Christ says, no, you are actually in utter poverty, and if you want true riches, you need to get them from me, the person who you don't think you need. Laodicea is famous for producing fine clothes, designer clothing exported around the world, and yet Christ says to them, you don't have any clothes. And if you want clothes, you come to me, and I will give you garments of white. Laodicea is famous, remember I said earlier, for producing this eye salve that helps people see. And yet Christ says, you are blind. And if you want to see, you're going to have to come to me and get my eye salve. Christ makes clear to the church in Laodicea that without him, they are absolutely destitute. And if they want true riches, they can only get those things from Christ. But there's a further irony in this text. Christ has made very clear that Laodicea is broke, but then he tells them to come buy these gifts from him. The question is, where are they going to get the money? If they are broke, if they are in poverty, if they are beggars in the street, how can they afford these precious gifts that Christ is offering for sale? And the answer to that question is they can't. And that's the point. Without Christ, we are poor and destitute, and we desperately need only what Christ can give, but there's no way we could ever pay for those things. And so we are reminded in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." 
paradox says, without Christ, we are destitute, but with Christ, we are exceedingly rich, and we are utterly and completely dependent on Christ and his grace to receive those riches. But there's one more thing we need to remember about who we are. Without Christ, we are in utter poverty, but in Christ, we are exceedingly rich, and we are loved more than we can imagine. Look at verse 19. He says this to this church, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. In spite of all the sin, all the pride, all this terrible attitude that's going on in Laodicea, Christ makes it clear in verse 19 that these are people whom he loves. Why? There's nothing lovely about this church. He has nothing good to say about this church. And there's nothing lovely about us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can never be good enough to earn this love. We don't deserve that love, and yet he gives it to us. How do we understand these, these truths that seem to be in, in, in such contrast to one another, that we are both worthless and wretched and yet so treasured and valued. Maybe this will help explain it. Imagine I was at a yard sale and I found an old beat up wooden baseball bat. It's got cracks in it. Uh, it's got some scratches and dings. The, the finish is peeling in places, but you know what? It's $2.00. And I want a baseball bat for some reason, so I buy that baseball bat. But I take that $2 bat home, and then I start doing some research. And I find out that this old wooden baseball bat was actually Babe Ruth's baseball bat. Babe Ruth, not just a candy bar, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. How much is my $2 baseball bat worth now? A lot. You know what? I made up this illustration, but I actually, just for fun, yesterday I Googled how much Babe Ruth's baseball bat would cost. And just a few months ago, they sold Babe Ruth's baseball bat, one of his baseball bats, for $1.85 million. It is the most valuable baseball bat in the world. And the second most valuable baseball bat is another one of his baseball bats that sold for $1.65 million. Why are these baseball bats worth so much? It's not the bat. It's whose bat it was. The bat's not encrusted in gold or, or studded with diamonds. It's just this beat-up wooden thing. And yet, Babe Ruth chose that bat, made that bat his own. And because of that, that bat is worth so much money. On our own, Without Christ, by ourselves, we are in utter poverty. There's nothing lovely about us. There's nothing valuable about us that makes us worth saving. And yet God, in his grace, saw us in our wretched and helpless and sinful state. And in spite of all that, he decrees, I am going to save them, even though it will cost the death of my beloved son. And he takes us beggars, and he makes us his treasure. And he takes us wretches, and he makes us his beloved children. He takes us who are naked and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. 
Tim Keller said it well. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because apart from Christ, we are wretched, but amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so if you are ever tempted to fall into prideful self-sufficiency, remember who you are. Without Christ, apart from Christ, you are more wretched than you can imagine. And yet because of Christ, you are more treasured and loved than you can even comprehend. And it is all because of grace. We are totally and utterly dependent on Christ and his goodness towards us. And it is because of his love for us that we who are wretches are now treasures. And so if you want to guard against sinful self-reliance, we have to remember who God is and who we are. But the third way to guard against sinful self-reliance is to seek fellowship with Christ. We find this in verse 20. Go ahead and look at that verse here. It says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is a passage that you've probably heard before. And usually when people use this, they're using it evangelistically. The idea is that Jesus is uh, knocking on the door of an unbeliever's heart, and he wants that unbeliever to let them in so that he can, they can be saved. But I don't think that's what this text is saying. Remember, this is written to believers. They know Christ. And so what, how do we understand this? I believe this verse is not Christ's invitation to salvation, but he is inviting wayward Christians to enjoy fellowship with him. Christ wants these Laodicean Christians who are so self-reliant that they don't think they need Christ to open the door so that he can come in and share a meal with them, to fellowship with them. It's actually kind of ironic when you think about it. He begins the letter by saying, you make me want to throw up. And then he says, can I come over to your house for dinner? You see, there's a distinction between union with Christ and fellowship with Christ. Union with Christ, when we are saved, we are become part of the children of God, that is permanent and static. That does not change. But fellowship with Christ can ebb and flow. I think marriage is a great example of this. You are either married or you are not married. You never wake up one day being half married. You are married or you are not. But those of us who are married know that despite our marital status not changing, our relationship can change, can wax and wane. There are times where we feel very close to our spouse and it's a warm and it's a thriving relationship, but there are other times where we feel distant. We feel like maybe we don't really know them like we used to. 
either we're busy, we're passing like ships in the night, whatever it was, and, and, and so it's so easy to drift apart. And I think that is exactly what is happening to the church in Laodicea with their relationship with Christ. Their union with Christ hasn't changed, but their prideful self-sufficiency has kept them from fellowship with Christ. They felt like they had everything they needed, and so they neglected to talk with God in prayer. They hadn't been spending time with God and his word. They've been preoccupied with the things of this world, and they've distanced themselves from Christ. And so their relationship with him, which was once so vibrant, has grown cold. Maybe they're still going through the motions of living the Christian life and doing Christian-type things, but their hearts are far from him. And they're so busy and preoccupied with the stuff of this earth that it seems like maybe they don't even notice. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You know that you are a believer, but you haven't been fellowshipping with Christ. Your heart is, is cold towards him. You're distant towards him. You don't remember the last time that you spent time with Christ in his word and in his prayer. And so this relationship that at one point might have been thriving and you were excited and passionate about it, you've grown cold and you've grown distant. Believe me, I've been there. Had times in my life like that where I felt distant from Christ and it's my own fault because I've got so busy with the things in front of me that I forget about God and pursuing him and fellowshipping with him. But there is an incredible hope in this passage and I love this. This is probably the part of the passage that I've been thinking about the most because though they have distanced themselves from Christ, though we distance ourselves from Christ, he is not distant from us. He's at the door. He's knocking. He wants to be let in. And though our heart might have grown cold towards him, he longs to experience fellowship with us. What an amazing thing that is. What, what a humble thing that is that Christ isn't, isn't standing with his arms crossed. I'll wait till they crawl back to me and see how much they need me. He's at the door. And so if you are distant from Christ this morning, if your heart feels cold towards him, he's not far from you. But you've got to open the door. You can't have a close relationship with Christ if you don't have fellowship with him. Just like I can't have a close relationship with my wife if I never talk to her. And so seek him in his word Spend time with him in prayer. Take some time out of your busy life. Remove distractions. Just spend some time focusing on fellowship with him. Scripture tells us that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. When we're distant from Christ, it's very easy to be self-reliant. We forget all the things that we're missing. But when we are tasting the sweetness and the joy of fellowship with our Savior, any temptation to be sinfully self-reliant melts away because there's nothing better in this world than knowing Christ. And when we're experiencing that fellowship, there's no way we can say, I don't need you. We know our need for him. So if you want to guard against sinful self-reliance, seek fellowship with Christ. The last way to guard against sinful self-reliance is to live in light of eternity. 
to live in light of eternity. The church in Laodicea has become so preoccupied with the present earthly things that they've lost sight of Christ. And before we're too hard on that church, we have to realize that's easy for us to do, isn't it? Things of earth are, are what is right in front of us. They're the things that we can see, the things that the world around us values most. And many of these things are good things. It's great to have money in the bank and a reliable car and a good job and a wonderful home and a wonderful family. And we should enjoy all these things as gifts from God. But the problem is when we live like the stuff of the earth is all there is. When we're so focused on this life that we lose sight of eternity and we lose sight of God. Here in verse 21, Christ lifts the eyes of the Laodiceans and our own eyes off of the temporary earthly stuff that we're so enamored with and onto the eternal glories of heaven. Look what he says in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and I, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He promises here that for those of us who conquer, we will reign with Christ forever. Unless we try to take any credit for this, he says very clearly that the only reason we are able to reign and, be conquer, and conquer with Christ is because Christ has already conquered and is enthroned in heaven now. This is an incredible promise and future that we have. I was talking with the teens. We, we talked about a catechism question that uh, had to do with heaven. We we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth and what a glorious thing that is that awaits us, that we will have this eternal home with Christ in a perfect world. And yet it's so easy to lose sight of all of that and just focus on what's right in front of you. I am nearsighted, and so when I was a kid, I needed glasses. I could see things that were good uh, right in front of me, but the further they got away, the harder it was to see. I couldn't see very far, and I didn't want to get glasses because I thought they were nerdy and people would make fun of me. Nowadays, glasses are cool. People are wearing fake glasses. I'm like, what in the world? That would not have flown in middle school with me. But eventually, I got glasses after uh, much protestation, that's a weird word, but that's the only one I thought of. I got glasses, and I remember putting them on and, and looking out the car window, and it was like a whole new world. Because the, the things that were uh, close, I could still see the same way, but there were so many things beyond that that I couldn't see. Everything was so much clearer. I could see so much farther, and there were so many more things that, that I didn't notice because I couldn't see them without those glasses. Brothers and sisters, when we see the world through the lens of eternity, everything changes. Yes, the job and the car and the money in your bank account, those things are still there. You can still see those things, but you see so much more than that. It's such a small part of everything. It's so tiny in, in light of eternity that awaits us. We have eternal joy with Christ, treasures in heaven. So why live for the pleasures of this life as if that's all that is when you have eternal joy with Christ in a perfect world promised? 
Why put our confidence in our bank account when we could put our confidence in the fact that we are beloved children of God? How can we be caught up in material possessions when we know the treasures of heaven that awaits us? In the words of that famous hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So if we want to guard against sinful self-reliance living like this world and this stuff is all that is and all that we need, we need to get our eyes off of that and onto eternity. And suddenly those things that seemed so important, those things that seemed to make us feel so self-reliant feel very incredibly small. If we want to guard against sinful self-reliance, we must live in light of eternity. One of the things that President Abraham Lincoln was famous for, you might not know this, but he was the one who made Thanksgiving a national holiday. I think we all love Thanksgiving, a time to get together and feast on turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing and all that other good stuff. But what Abraham Lincoln is less known for is that three times in his presidency, he called not for a national day of feasting, but a national day of fasting, repentance, and prayer. And I want to read you an excerpt from one of these calls to fasting and repentance that he gave to the nation on March 30th, 1863, because it's incredible how much it sounds like this text. He says this to the United States. We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own intoxicated with unbroken success we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the God who made us. This is how Abraham Lincoln described our nation 160 years ago, and it sounds a lot like the church in Laodicea, doesn't it? But the real question is, does this describe us? Have we become so intoxicated with unbroken success, have had so many good things in our life that we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace? Have we become so sinfully self-reliant that we've become too proud to pray to the God who made us? And brothers and sisters, if that is us, we need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We must be zealous and repent. Remember, this is not any minor thing. This is a serious sin that makes us useless and disgusting before God. And so we need to remember who God is and stand in awe of him. 
We need to remember who we are, utterly wretched without Christ, but because of Christ, more treasured and loved than we can imagine. We need to seek fellowship with Christ. It's not an optional thing that Christians do. We need that. And he is at the door and longs to invite you in. And we must live in light of eternity, getting our eyes off the stuff in front of us, knowing that that's soon going to pass away. But we have an inheritance with Christ that will last forever. And that is what is worth living for. This letter closes as all the letters closes in verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we see this church in Laodicea, we in many ways see ourselves. How often do we become so sinfully self-reliant? How often we take the blessings that you have given us and turn them into idols? How many times do we live our life like we don't need anything from you? We have everything. We repent of those things. We want to turn from those things. We pray that we would seek you in fellowship, that we would be reminded and, and stand of awe of who you are, that we would be just in wonder of the gospel, that you would save wretches like us. We pray that we would be people that seek you in your word, in prayer, in fellowship with one another. And we pray that you'd help us to get our eyes off these things of this world that can so easily distract and see things in light of eternity. We love you, Lord, and we, we are thankful for you that you reprove and rebuke those who you love. And so we're thankful for rebukes and reproves like this because we know that you love us too much to leave us in our sin to leave us in our pride. So we just pray that as this text says, we would hear what your spirit is saying and we would repent and we would live as people who know how radically and utterly dependent we are on you and your grace every moment of every day of our lives in the good times and the bad. We pray all these things the God who is faithful, the God who is true, the God who is beginning of all creation. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.